Welcome back to the Tasty Morsels of Critical Care podcast. And so with extreme brevity, we're going to try and cover O's Manual, Chapter 38, on respiratory monitoring. This is a bit of a hodgepodge, I must admit. Um, So we'll start by looking at the lung mechanics section of this chapter. The first useful point is that the pressures recorded by the vent are usually interpreted as reflecting the compliance of the lungs, when in fact they are often significantly impacted by the chest wall, most commonly in the case of obesity. The esophageal balloon is probably our best way around this problem as it gives a fairly accurate surrogate for pleural pressure. There is some data supporting the use of an esophageal balloon to guide peep peep titration by calculating the transpleural pressure. This is peep minus esophageal pressure. Typically you end up with a higher peep in the obese patient than you would have otherwise, but this is being done safely. This is all theoretical for me as these devices have not been available to me throughout my training and the outcome data for the use has not been especially compelling. But all the smart ventilator people talk about it when they're giving their lectures. Talking of PEEP, one of the things we have to look for is intrinsic PEEP, also known as auto PEEP, also known as dynamic hyperinflation. Intrinsic PEEP adds to the work of inspiration with additional effort needed to overcome the additional positive pressure within the lungs. We most commonly measure this with the end inspiratory hold. The number generated here is the static intrinsic PEEP, which should be distinguished from its cousin, dynamic intrinsic PEEP, which I had never heard of before reading this. Dynamic intrinsic PEEP instead reflects the pressure change needed to initiate inflation of the lungs. And O describes a way of measuring this while pointing out it's very complex as you need an esophageal and even a gastric balloon to appropriately quantify it. All of this is to say that dynamic intrinsic PEEP actually exists and it's very tricky to measure. In the same chapter, we have patient ventilator asynchrony and we are bemoaned for missing it. O describes this as most commonly caused by a failure of triggering and notes that the best way to pick it up is to look for deflections on a, yes, you guessed it, an esophageal balloon. Um, Any deflections in this esophageal balloon not followed by a breath from the vent um, would suggest that there's lack of triggering. When you don't have a balloon, then you're stuck with looking at the patient and the ventilator waveforms. And note that deflections in the pressure waveform are much less sensitive for asynchrony than changes in the flow waveform. Auto-triggering, which is defined as initiation of breath without patient effort, comes in a few flavours with cardiac oscillations and hiccups being well-known examples. One important concept to think of is that of matching the length of inspiration from the ventilator with the length of inspiration that the body wants. This is described as the mechanical inspiration time versus the neural inspiration time. Where the mechanical time is shorter than the neural time, then the body is not getting the length of breath that it wants, either in terms of the duration or the flow of gas that it wants. As a result, the body triggers the next breath very shortly after the completion of the first or even before that one's fully completed. Occasionally, the mechanical breath can be longer than the neural breath, and as a result, the lungs are passively inflated rather than assisted or supported. Following on from this, we have a few methods of measuring neuromuscular function. Firstly, we have the P0.1 or the airway occlusion pressure. This measures the negative pressure, the P.1, sorry, measures the negative pressure generated in the first 100 milliseconds of inspiration. In the spontaneously breathing patient on a support mode, this gives you some idea of the work of breathing or perhaps more specifically the respiratory drive. A normal value is somewhere in the one to five centimetres of water range. And I have used this as a means of checking if the patient is working harder than I'd like in a pressure support mode. Finally, one interesting way of monitoring your muscular function is to look at the electrical function of the diaphragm. You can do this, you pass a modified NG tube um, that has a little sensor that picks up electrical ac- activation of the diaphragm, and you use that electrical activation of the diaphragm to trigger the vent. I have used a grand, this a grand total of once and found it intriguing, but I have little use in that N equals one case series.
If you were still looking for other things to place in an SAQ on respiratory monitoring and a ventilated patient, then a mention of diaphragmatic ultrasound is probably worth throwing in. Basically, you can visualise the diaphragm fairly well and you can use its observed thickening as a way of predicting various things about ventilated patients. It remains, as far as I can tell, a fairly niche application of point of care ultrasound. References for this are O's Manual Chapter 38, and I've included a couple of papers, one by Telias et al. in 2018 on the airway occlusion pressure, the P.1, uh, and then a further paper from the late 90s by Conti et al., which was uh, about measurement of occlusion pressures in the critically ill. I found both of them very helpful. Okay, thank you for listening. Thank you.